Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Thank you for being here this morning. Normally, uh, we start the sermon with some, some pithy or catchy opening to make it a little more entertaining. But we don't have time for that today. We've only got about, we've only got about 30 minutes, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. So please forgive me if we, if we jump right in. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, without question, the most famous sermon in history. It has shaped civilizations. It has forged cultures. It has molded leaders across the world and through the ages. The sermon starts in chapter 5 and runs all the way through chapter 7 of Matthew. The ethics, morals, and aspirations Jesus preached on that hillside 2,000 years ago have reverberated through history, and, and this sermon continues to inform most of the ideas we value today. Equity, compassion, humility, generosity, forgiveness. These were not at all the values of previous civilizations. They weren't the values held by Rome or even the religious leaders of Israel. In fact, Jesus' sermon was revolutionary. It was revolutionary then and it's still revolutionary today. So we're going to focus on the very end of Jesus' sermon and see if we can't understand a little about his absolutely radical message and, and what our response to it should be starting at Matthew 7, 24 and going through verse 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus here wants us to know there are absolutes. There are certain fixed points of reality that are true for every person and every time and every place. And no matter how much we wish we could change them, there are, there are ways that produce flourishing and ways that lead to destruction. He says the storm is coming. It, it will be destructive and chaotic. And the storm doesn't care about you. Christian or pagan, good or bad, the rain falls on everyone. And if you have not built your house on a solid, solid foundation, then you will be consumed. But if there's one thing we know in 10,000 years of recorded human history, we can be sure that building on these words of Christ are not our natural inclination. Our natural bent is to build on sinking sand. Our, our natural bent is to put selfishness ahead of others. It's to put personal desire and the pursuit of pleasure over self-sacrifice. It's to put my faith in my own intelligence, my own sense of right, my own wisdom. It's to believe I know what's best for me. And not just what's best for me, but what's best for everybody around me too. We know it's not true, 
but the world is a noisy voice washing over quaint notions of fact and truth and faith. The world changes. Cultures change. And today, so today, many of the ideas that Jesus taught are under attack. But that's nothing new. They were under attack in the last century, and they've been under attack from one quarter or another in every century since Jesus spoke. Today, the attack comes mostly from postmodernists and materialists who tell us there is no God. You're just a random accident. There is no right or wrong. You decide what's true for your own life. Even established science is now yielding to the anti-scientific notions such as gender fluidity. For many, the, the number of subscribers you have on TikTok is more important than the quality of your character. Today, virtue is something you claim, not something you earn through a, a life of courage and integrity and self-sacrifice. And if you don't agree, well, prepare to be canceled. In our culture today, the rock is ignored, or worse, it's hated, and it's bulldozed to make room for more modern ideologies. But when the storm comes, your ideology won't help. And the storm, it's coming. It's inevitable. Storms always come. Consider verses 25 and 27. How is the storm described? It's violent. It beats down. It's a torrent. It's a rising flood. The Bible often speaks of suffering and obstacles as as storms that hit in life, storms will come, storms always come, and they bring suffering and fear and pain and death. Maybe you think the storm shouldn't come for Christians. Maybe you think God's people should somehow be immune from the storms of life. We shouldn't have to face the anxiety and pain and heartache of torrential suffering. But it's never been like that in the Bible. In the Bible, the way of salvation is always through judgment. The way to eternal life is the way through death. The way to the overflowing cup is always through the valley of the shadow. The way to blessing is always through curse. The way to peace is the way through suffering. It's only ever been that way. You have to go through the waters. There's sickness and sadness and loneliness and broken hearts. There's car accidents and earthquakes and calamities of all kinds, there's death. And there's the judgment of God against a world that has betrayed its creator. Are we building our lives in light of that? That's what Jesus says is the essence of wisdom. Matthew 7 again, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. What are these words Jesus says we're to hear and, and practice? What, well, if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you see Jesus outlines a radical new way of thinking and, and behaving. He's saying that if you want to experience the joy you were made for, you have to do things differently than the world teaches you, what the world has always taught people. The world says it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's the law of the jungle. It's every man for himself. It's credit where credit is due. It's survival of the fifth fittest. It's, it's once bitten, twice shy. You know these idioms. They're the sayings that pass for hard-won wisdom by realists who know how the world ticks. But Jesus rewrites all these things. 
in Christ's kingdom, it's a dog help dog world. It's the law of paradise. It's every man for his neighbor. It's credit where none is due. It's the survival of the weakness, weakest. It's often bitten, always forgiven. He upends all of our assumptions about the ways the world works, about truth and, and about the, the route to real life, real joy, real blessing. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are dozens of radical new ways to think about life and to live it out, but I'm going to pick just five examples of some of the most profound lessons that Jesus shares with his listeners. And it starts in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Verse 3 is the first verse of the sermon. And in, chap in verses 3 through 12, he outlines nine groups of people he says are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world, the earth. And on it goes. He adds to the blessing those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted for righteousness, and those persecuted for Christ. To me, it seems especially revealing that the first thing Jesus says, the, the very first thing, is that it's the spiritually poor who are blessed. Nor does it say it's the spiritually strong or, or powerful or proud. It's the spiritually poor. It's those who grieve, in verse 4. It's those who are meek, in verse 5. This is the king telling us about his kingdom. And he says, in his kingdom, the gates are flung open to strugglers to the spiritually deficient, to the ones who know they're flawed and failed, those who know they need God and have no right to heaven. But he says the gates are slammed shut to the proud. Anyone who thinks they deserve the kingdom, they're disqualified. You don't get into the kingdom because you're moral or powerful or religious or rich. The ones who get in, they're the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek. How can Jesus call mourners blessed? Blessed just means happy. How can there be happy mourners? And what about the meek? Frank Zappa says the meek ain't going to inherit nothing. So who's taking over the earth? George Soros? Elon Musk? The Davos One Worlders? Jesus says the meek inherit the world. He says everything you know about power is wrong. How can mourners be happy? How can the meek inherit? How can the spiritually deficient, take, take over heaven. Jesus is telling us about people who are blessed in the, presence because, in the present because they have a promised future, and their king will certainly keep his promise. The promise doesn't end our spiritual poverty or our mourning. It transforms it. Jesus says, you don't feel up to the kingdom of heaven? No problem. I can work with that. I'll bring that kingdom of heaven down to you. Jesus. He's given everything so that we who know we're flawed, we who are poor in spirit, we who mourn, we who are persecuted, we can enter. Maybe that looked foolish as Jesus was nailed to a cross. To those who heard this sermon and remembered what he'd said about the meek, the, the persecuted, the pure in heart, the, the spiritually bankrupt, that they would be the beneficiaries of heaven and earth, as they gazed up at Jesus on that cross, it would have sounded crazy. But then on Easter Sunday, what do you think then? So in verse 9, I'm sorry, so in the first 
nine verses, Jesus describes the blessed with adjectives. But in verse 13 and 14, he uses nouns to identify his citizens. Salt of the earth, light of the world, city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And did you notice there are no verbs telling us what to do or how to act? There's no imperatives in this in these verses. He doesn't tell us what to do, he tells us who we are. In verse 14, he says, we are the light. How can we who are spiritually impoverished be the light of the world? Because Jesus is the light and we are his body. The world has no source of light in and of itself. Were it not for the sun, the world would be engulfed in permanent night. Jesus is the source of all light. In the third verse of the Bible, he says, in the beginning, he says, let there be light. And there was light. Were you frightened by the dark? Made anxious by the prospect of staring into the pit of total darkness? And beyond good and evil, Frederick Nietzsche says that when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. But you can take heart because light and dark are not equal. Darkness isn't a thing, it's the absence of a thing. Light drives away darkness. Darkness can never overcome the light. Whenever there is light, darkness must fail. So Christ says, be what you are. Be radiant in him and shine the light of truth on a world that chases after lies. And in verse 13, he says, his followers are the salt of the earth. He says, we're supposed to be different. In the Old Testament, salt's often used in context of judgment. In Genesis 19, Lot's wife uh, disobeys and becomes a, a pillar of salt. In Ezekiel 43, it says uh, salt should be sprinkled on the burnt offerings for sin. Paul says, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Paul is reiterating the words of Christ here. Yes, you are light in a dark world, but we don't affirm the world. We change it. We want peace and unity, but not at all costs. We can't desire inclusion over truth-telling. We rub against the grain. The world will be offended by the gospel and find our views intolerable. But we can't stop speaking the truth as Scripture leads us to understand truth. Jesus says, what's the point if you give in and turn bland? No, we have to stay salty. And then Jesus teaches us the hardest lesson of all. Love your enemies. Early in my life, I learned don't get mad, get even. Christ teaches us exactly the opposite. Don't get mad, get reconciled. That's what he says uh, we must do if we want to survive the storm. In Matthew 5, 43, You've heard it said that love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, don't strike back, love back. Don't cower in fear, advance with compassion. Don't demand justice against the other, demand mercy for the other. 
Don't be emboldened by pride. Be courageous in humility. Don't retaliate in revenge. Retaliate in grace. Be like Jesus, who neither hardened nor cowered. He absorbed the blow, and with arms outstretched, he embraces his killers, especially them, only them, including you and me. And he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. There's enough strength in this weakness to redeem the world. But you won't find it in anger. It requires surrender. Receiving the peace of God requires you to lay down your arms. Then in chapter 6, 9, Jesus revolutionizes our understanding of God and our relationship with the king creator of the, of, of, of the universe, of all existence. Here's what he says. This then is how you should pray, our Father. It's easy to imagine that before Jesus, people prayed to a God that was too high and too far away to, to really understand or know. God lived apart from the people, behind the curtain, in the back of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But from before creation, Jesus was communing and praying and deferring to his Father in the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. And then God takes flesh. He comes into the world as one of us, and he doesn't stop praying. He's still talking to God, but now he's doing it as our brother. And he says, here's how you should pray. Father. I think we've gotten so used to thinking about it this way, we don't realize just how radical a notion that is. Think about it. We get to call the almighty maker of the cosmos what only his only begotten son calls him. Not because we're good. We're far from it. We're evil. But because God becomes your brother. He takes you to himself. He brings you into his home, not as a servant, but as a son, a daughter. And now his father is your father. That changes everything, doesn't it? So often we think heaven is silent. Where's God when I find myself in the pit? I've insurmountable financial trouble. I've been diagnosed with a terrible disease. There's been a break in a relationship I thought would last forever. Where's God? Well, Jesus says he's as close to you as a father. You don't have to rage against heaven. You can whisper in his ear. And he hears every word. Jesus says, come in my name and in me. You're as close to God as I am. Call him Father. So sure, we experience the storms, the, the pain and suffering, the heartbreak and death. But real value isn't in good times or wealth or great relationships or even good health. Those things are wonderful and, and they're important and you need them. But, but what you really need is the heart of a loving father. And then in Matthew 6, if we'll seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness, then he's pleased to give us all we need. And that's interesting. In chapter 6, it says, first seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's a little scary to me because I'm deeply inadequate when it comes to righteousness. <laughs> the truth is I'm a lot better at spiritual poverty than I am the righteousness of God. And that anxiety increases when I read uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5.20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is this righteousness? It, is it follow the rules, the daily grind, just keep your head down, just keep slogging away, pull your weight? 
That's not what the Bible says. It says Abraham believed and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. It says he trusted in the Lord and he was declared righteous. This is the foundation of everything the, the Bible teaches about righteousness. It says righteous is something, righteousness is something God has and we don't. And so we must receive it from him. In fact, back at the beginning of this amazing sermon, it says we are blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness because we will be filled. That's not a command. It's a promise. But is that it? Righteousness is just some spiritual stuff that satisfies our hunger? I think Jesus is talking about something a lot more personal than spiritual stuff. In fact, I think it's so personal it's about him. We read in verse 10 of chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then in the very next verse, in verse 11, he says, blessed are those when people insult you and persecute you because of me. Do you see how Jesus sees righteousness? Verse 10, he says, we're persecuted because of righteousness. Verse 11, he says, we're persecuted because of him. It's the same thing. Righteousness and Jesus are the same. Righteousness isn't a thing. It's not a state of being. It's not religious food. Jesus says, righteousness is a person. It's me, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says the same thing when he writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if we read Matthew 6, that way, then if we first seek Christ, if he's our rock, our foundation, our first love, our ultimate reality, then, then God will give us all we need. Cancer? <laughs> Cancer is nothing. Because you have a father who loves you, who wants good for you, and who is able to raise the dead. He gives you eternal life. Cancer? Terminal illness? That's nothing a resurrection won't fix. And you can say that because your elder brother has restored you to your true home and, you may, and made you joint heirs with him in his father's kingdom. So we're told to seek righteousness by seeking Christ. And then finally in chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus tells us in practical terms what it means to seek him. Toe the line, follow the rules, avoid fun. Is that what he says? No, he says, in light of the love of the father and me, your brother, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, then here's what you're supposed to do. Love. In verse 12, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In everything, 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 do to others what you would have them do to you. We call it the golden rule, and it's the foundation for everything we know about how to treat others, isn't it? We should always treat others the way we'd want to be treated. The problem is, <laughs> I don't do it. The golden rule is the basis for all ethical behavior, but I don't do it, not naturally. So the golden rule judges me to be a failure. Do unto others is, is not how I think, not naturally anyway. I'm more transactional than that. If someone does something good for me, then I'll try to do something good for them. If someone hurts me, I'll fantasize about all the ways I can hurt them back. So what am I to do? How do I reconcile my sin with my Christian confession? Jesus says, this is what sums up the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. It's due to others as you would have done to you. But this isn't the first time in the sermon Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. 
go back to chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In these two verses, Jesus tells us what the Bible is all about. First, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, The law and the prophets are all about him. He says, His purpose is to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's saying, Everything you think you know about the Old Testament, it's about me. It's all about me. And then two chapters later in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says, here's what sums up the law and the prophets. It's do as you would have done. He says, here's how you treat others. It's a command. He says, do as you would be done by. So Jesus gives us two ways to view the Old Testament. On the one hand, he's telling us, do as you would be done to. And on the other, he's telling us about the one who actually fulfills that command. It's him. It's all about him. If you think of Jesus as just a good teacher, then I think it only shows you're not a very good listener. Jesus here doesn't teach us about love. He commands it. And then he offers us the one great fulfiller of that command, himself. That's the Bible. It gives us the command, and it, and it gives us the Savior who fulfills the command. It gives us the law, and it gives us the gospel. Jesus doesn't wait for us to do good to him. In fact, we don't do good to him. We've done great evil to him. But he comes anyway, and he does us great good. The Lord is good. The golden rule is beautiful. But we are not. We are not good, and we have defaced the image of God. But Jesus doesn't leave us in our failure and our sin. He comes to keep the law we could not by doing unto us what we could never do unto him. And he does it for you, and he does it for me. The Sermon on the Mount gives us scores of famous sayings. It's the, the best-known, most compelling sermon in the history. And it lays out the basis of what it means to live a good life. Generosity, humility, faith, truth, fairness. And yes, Jesus is a good teacher. But if we really listen to his words, he, he, he will tell us that he claims to be so much more than that. As far as earthly observers can tell, the preacher on the hillside is just a carpenter. No formal education, no money, no place, he says, to lay his head, surrounded by the, the poor, the meek, the persecuted. And there he preaches against the religiously powerful and, and the spiritually proud, those who will soon scatter his listeners and accuse him of the worst kind of blasphemy those who will disgrace and humiliate him as he hangs on a cross. And yet as he concludes this sermon, he speaks with absolute authority. Shockingly, Jesus portrays himself as the ultimate judge who alone bestows the blessings of mercy in heaven or, or the curse of judgment in hell. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I knew you not. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus here is talking about the wolves in sheep's clothing, the, the bad trees who produce bad fruit. But isn't it interesting that Jesus is the one whom all people, wolves and sheep, petition on that final day? Jesus is the Lord. 
who the righteous claim to honor. Jesus is the name in which prophecy is uttered and mighty deeds are done. And here in verse 21, Jesus tells us exactly who is qualified to enter the gates of heaven. He says, only the one who does the will of my Father. And what is the will of the Father? Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the disciples asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus tells them, there's only one work God requires, and it's this. Believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is the one we must know, who must know us. Jesus is where we find heaven, and in his absence is where we find hell. Jesus isn't just some wandering rabbi preaching timeless truths on a hillside surrounded by outcasts. He's the Lord, the judge, the centerpiece of all time. He's the righteousness for whom we hunger and thirst. He's the fulfiller and the accomplisher of the law he preaches. It's Jesus who from Matthew 6 is the righteous, merciful, pure in heart, loving, forgiving, perfect man. It's Jesus who from Matthew 6 is the generous, humble, praying, fasting, self-sacrificing, worry-free believer. It's Jesus who from Matthew 7 is the true, devoted, asking, seeking, knocking prayer. He's the one who does unto others what he would have them do unto him. Only he makes sure we produce good fruit. Only he makes sure we go through the right gate and stay on the narrow path. Only he is the rock that survives the storm. Everything else is sinking sand. So how are we meant to respond? I think we see the answer in the response of one of his listeners that day. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. This leopard is considered disposable by society. He's deceased, he's outcast, he's untouchable. And he's just heard about the coming storm. He should flee, shouldn't he? He does flee. He flees to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing. And Jesus says the unthinkable. He reaches out and he touches the man. He touches the untouchable and cleanses the unclean. This is our great hope. By nature, we are unclean. We are all unclean. We're naturally fools, forsaking Christ's words and building our kingdoms on sinking sand. And yet there is more grace. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. More cleansing in Christ than there is filth in our hearts. And he longs to give us the righteousness for which we hunger. After preaching this sermon, Jesus finds a dirty, unclean, diseased sinner, and he stretches out his hand, not for condemnation, but for salvation. This is who Jesus is. This is his life. This is what he wants for us. So after hearing the words of Jesus, what do we do? We come to the rock of our salvation, and we say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what do we hear? We hear Jesus saying, I am willing. 
be clean. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain comes, the rain come down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Notice the sermon that began with blessing for the poor in spirit finishes with the utter destruction of the foolish. If we don't learn anything else from the greatest sermon ever preached, let's learn this. There's only one rock. There's only one truly wise builder. We're going to come to the table, and I just want to say this isn't our table. It's the table of the Lord. And so all who believe Jesus is the rock that protects us from the storm are welcome. If you aren't holding fast to Jesus, then please let the elements pass. You can see me or or one of the elders, if you want to talk about it, we'd love to talk talk to you about the the everlasting rock of joy and and love that, that we cling to. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new blood in my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, it is only by the shed body, the shed blood and broken body of Christ that we can come before you and and call you Father. So we come now, not pleading without hope like the pagans, but as your children whispering in a good father's ear, and we say thank you. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness to us. Forgive us, Father, for our doubts, our difficulties, our failures. And Father, help us please to see your love in our lives. Take and eat. Jesus, our Lord and King, Only you make certain your people produce good fruit. Stay on the narrow path. Only you are the rock that survives the storm. Everything else is sinking sand. And even though we have failed to love you as we would be loved, you pour your love out on us. We who are your enemies. And you strengthen us from everlasting to everlasting. What grace, Jesus, what mercy. All we can do is offer our gratitude in our lives. Use us now so that we might be light in a dark world. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, it is is natural for us to build on sinking sand to make foolish idols of even the good things you provide, like work and family and talent. We are not naturally prone to be pure in spirit or 
hunger for righteousness or walk the extra mile without grumbling. But with the love of God, you can empower us to be the people God has made us to be. Holy Spirit, would you do so? Would you fill us and empower us and strengthen us and, and give us the means we need to do for others what we had, would have done to us and thereby to radiate the love of Christ to a world that so desperately needs the light? In Christ, amen. Will you rise and receive the benediction? The benediction today is from uh, Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Receive the blessing of Jesus Christ and go forth to be a blessing and do for others what you would have them do for you. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.